got your Bibles open, your devices, whatever it might be, if you've memorised the Old Testament, uh, Joshua chapter 7, we're mindful that uh, much of the Scripture actually was given for public reading, much of the New Testament's written in the form of letters that were to be written to churches and uh, perhaps one of the things we don't do as much as the early church would be to attend to the public reading of Scripture. So this morning we're going again to read from Joshua chapter 7 as part of our continuing series in this book of Joshua, a series that uh, we're looking at the life of Joshua, we're looking at some of the life lessons that we might take from the story of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7 starting at verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai, Send two or three thousand men to take it and do not weary the whole army for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up but they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan." Pardon your servant, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things, they have stolen, they have lied and they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy what is among you devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people, tell them, Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zeharites were chosen. 
He had the clan of the Zeharites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua and his family uh, had his family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel and honour him. Tell me what you have done, do not hide it from me. And Achan said, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw the plunder, when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, his donkey, his sheep and his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped a large pile of rocks which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger and therefore this place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. That's some rough stuff for us this morning, isn't it? We need to pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. And as we do come to it today, we, we ask, we plead with you that you will throw the light of your spirit upon it, that we might understand it in its context and make applications appropriate to our context from it. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active and you will speak to us through it today, through every passage of scripture, even hard passages such as this one. Bless us today, we pray, as we consider what you're saying to your church we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's almost a year ago that I had the opportunity of packing up the car and the trailer and uh, departing Warrnambool, here it is, uh, for new adventures in living in Wodonga. I should, Diana said, I should have had the car doors open so you could see that was packed to the hilt as well. <laughs> But I like to be organised and one of the things that I did to be organised before leaving Warrnambool was ring some energy companies and say, when I get to my new house, I want the power on. Can you do that? No problem, they said. Of course, they want your business, don't they? And so we entered into a contract for the electricity and for the gas and I looked forward to the day when I got to the house to be able to push the remote control button and the door on the garage would open magically for me and I would just be able to back this catastrophe into it and <laughs> unload it uh, as, as I... Now, you know where this story's going, right? <laughs> because the day that I turned up at the house... I, uh, I went in and I pushed the light and there was no light, so I thought no problems, went out to the main fuse box, checked the fuses, everything was on, no power. Bit of a problem because it was late in the day and I was starting to think, how am I going to manage? I don't actually know how this house is laid out all that well. And I've got all this stuff I've got to get in to the house. And so I thought, what shall I do? What should you do? Well, I rang the aforementioned power company. 
And I got onto a very helpful lady and I said to her, uh, my friend, you have one hour to have the power on, otherwise I'm starting to ring other power companies. If you want to get action, that seems to be the way to do it. <laughs> because within 30 minutes, the power was on. The garage door has opened and closed magically ever since and I was able to use the lights appropriately in the house. Now, here's an interesting question. I want you to think about this uh, because, you know, we miss stuff when it's not there, don't we? We miss the electricity if it's not there. We miss the gas if it's not there. We miss, you know, if the sun's not there over a period of time, we miss it. But here's a question. If God withdrew his power and blessing from the church... How long would it be before we noticed, do you reckon? We'll just get uh, that question up there, Tim, if you would. How long would it be before we noticed if God withdrew his power and blessing from the church? How many weeks do you think we could go on the business of doing what we do if God wasn't present? Don't answer the question. <laughs> just think about the question. It's a pretty tough question actually, isn't it? A little confronting perhaps because it kind of attacks us in our, one of our strengths probably. You know, we like as is suggested in this passage, you know, the, the guy said, oh, Joshua, it'll be easy, we can take this place. You know, we've had this great victory at Jericho, let's go and give this city. We don't even need to take all the troops, we can do this. Because in that moment, Israel recognised above all, they needed God more than anything. Without the Lord going before them, they were hopeless. And the truth and reality is too for us, if we as a church believe for one moment, we can go about doing the things of God without God's power and God's presence amongst us, we are kidding ourselves. Let's just keep that in mind as we unpack this passage, uh, as we go through it here this morning. The manner in which this passage has been written is really, really interesting. The person who is writing this story has used a lovely little literary strategy of giving us a clue that the participants in the story don't know. We're let in on a secret, if you like, in verse 1, where we are told, straight up, the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan pinched some stuff that he shouldn't have pinched. That's the lens through which we read the rest of this story. And as, you know, if you're familiar with this strategy, as a reader, as a participant in the story, you kind of want to coach the participants in the story. You say, Joshua, don't you know this isn't going to go well, you know? You want to tell them, but you can't tell them. It's a bit like watching a movie when you know what's going on and the actors don't know what's going on. You, you want to say to them, watch out, don't go through that door kind of situation. You know, you know what's on the other side. And we know uh, that things didn't go well for them. They sent some people up to spy on the land. That's familiar with the story earlier in this uh, narrative of Joshua when they sent spies into the land. It's the same strategy again. Go and have a look. They went and spied out AI, verse 3, when they returned. They said won't have to send everybody, two or three thousand are going to be able to knock this place over, easy, no problems, don't weary everyone. So, and you know, we're getting anxious at this moment, about three thousand went up but they were routed, that's a great word, isn't it? They were routed, they were absolutely annihilated, thrashed, 36 of them, that's not a big number but it's significant 
And what we find out, of course, is here, if you come down to verse 5, at this the hearts of the people melted and became like water. There's some language we're familiar with too, isn't it? Because earlier in this passage, as the Israelites crossed the Jordan, what happened to those Canaanites and Amorites? Their hearts melted. The tables have been turned. And uh, a number of people suffer as a result of the unfaithfulness of Achan. You know, one of the questions that used to really trouble me about this story, maybe a question that troubles you as well, why is it that the whole nation has to suffer for the sin of one person? Or perhaps one family, because we might assume that Achan's family... Uh, living in the close proximity of the tent that they would have lived in, would have seen him bearing these devoted items in the tent. Why is it that the whole nation suffers because one person acts unfaithfully? That kind of offends my sense of justice. Does it offend yours? No one's going to say anything this morning. I didn't actually understand this, but actually uh, it helped me working in a different cultural context because... When you look at this question, as we do in our context, we look at it through the lens of a very individualistic culture, don't we? We live in a culture where my actions are owned by me, the consequences are my consequences, whatever is mine is mine, whatever is yours is yours kind of thing. But ancient Israel lived in a culture which is actually very common in our world, probably the dominant culture in our world, a culture that we might call the communitarian culture, a culture that shares everything, that everything is, uh, is not held in common in the sense of property, that's communism, but communitarian culture is, we're much more connected, much more related. Let me give you an example. I had a, a student from the Solomon Islands one time who uh, made a very grave error. It was the kind of error in a relationship that, um, that where would you put this, uh, would bear fruit nine months later, let's say. And uh, they were a big no-no, you know, a terrible thing. Who's at fault? Well, he was at fault. But you know what happened was that his whole Solomon Island community that were there with us came to me because for some reason I was the person responsible and they said, not for the action. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was the boss of the place at the time. And they said, this is terrible. What this person has done has affected all of us. And I sort of wanted to say, well, actually, it's really only him and that other person. What are you guys on about? But I didn't understand from a communitarian cultural perspective, the actions of one person impacts everybody. And the actions of Achan impacted everybody because what Achan did was basically steal the community purity or the purity, if you like, of the whole Israel community. And we might say, well, you know, that sounds like ridiculous that, that uh, the whole community should suffer for one. You know, there's passages in the Old Testament even that speak about uh, the Lord. In fact, in Ezekiel 18 verse 20, here's a good example. The Lord says, the one who sins is the one who dies. This is, you have to take responsibility for your actions. The child will not share the sin of the parents. And while it's true for us to say that we're all going to have to stand before God and give an account of our lives, it's also true to say that the way I live my life impacts your life. 
And in that sense, we do have responsibility for others. And the decisions that I make do impact you. You might be scratching your head saying, how does that work? Well, let me tell you how it works. You see, if I'm not walking before God in a faithful and holy manner, that's going to have an impact on you guys. Because I'll be less of a pastor than I should be. And in the family context, if I'm less of a husband than I'm meant to be, who does that impact? Well, it impacts my wife. But not only my wife, it's going to impact my daughters and my son because they're watching and they're going to be modelling what they see and learning what they see. And then it becomes a generational issue, doesn't it? And if I'm less of a father than God's called me to be, the same kind of thing uh, is at work. You know, one of the things that I do from time to time when uh, working with people in prayer is actually draw a genogram. Is anyone familiar with the word genogram? It's kind of like a family tree with all the relationships and history built into it. Uh, So the word genealogy and genogram, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And it's amazing to see how often you watch stuff come down family lines, behaviours or attitudes, bitterness, unforgiveness, all sorts of stuff. What we do impacts others more than we realise. If you are less of a person than God's called you to be, that impacts us as a community. This idea that it's only about myself and my actions only impact me, that is a terribly selfish mindset. And it's not biblical. This communitarian kind of nature of life that Israel shared at this stage is actually something we share. And so I understand a little more clearly now why it is that the sin of one impacts the other. Here's another reflection too, just uh, I'll give you this one for free. You know, sometimes we get ourselves all in a knot about God's justice and we don't give a thought to his holiness. The fact that God gets himself into this place of declaring you have offended me is because he's a holy God. And we run around kind of like, well, you can substitute whatever farm animal you like. I was going to use chickens with their heads cut off. You know, this is not right. This is not just. Why is this happening? We don't give a moment to think about the purity and holiness that God demands. You know, God is so apart from us. So holy, so set apart. We don't consider that as the first priority. We worry about whether we're feeling okay about stuff. Put that away just for the moment. We know, coming back to the, uh, to the passage, the attack on AI was doomed from the start. We're told 36 soldiers were killed. The, uh, the hearts of Israel became like water melting with fear. What a turnaround. And then we have... Joshua's reaction, have a look at this from verse 6, rather an interesting reaction. Joshua tore his clothes, he fell face down to the ground, the typical posture for mourning. He stayed there, the elders of Israel did the same, they sprinkled dust on their heads, again a typical expression of, of mourning and grief. And then Joshua said an amazing statements here, Oh sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring us across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? It sounds like those guys who were complaining about the Red Sea all those 40 or so years ago, doesn't it? Oh God, why did you bring us out here into the desert to die? How short their memories are. If only we'd stayed on the other side, 
What can I say, Joshua says, now Israel has been routed, the Canaanites and the other people of the countries will hear about this, they'll surround us, they'll wipe us out, wipe out our names from the earth. That's an interesting statement too, because only in verse 27 of chapter 6, the Lord was with Joshua, his fame spread throughout the land. You know, he's gone from here to here in the space of how many verses is that? Ten verses? Not even that. It's a dramatic reaction and I think we could probably, despite the fact, you know, we want to honour Joshua as a great man and leader amongst God's people, it's an overreaction because in that moment Joshua lost perspective. Joshua lost perspective. Just last week, you might remember if you were here, I described uh, the place, and you, we, you were invited to put yourself in this place, a foot soldier standing in front of the city of Jericho, this imposing city, it fills your vision. And in this moment, this moment of defeat, Joshua is standing, his vision is totally filled by this disaster. He can't see any perspective at all. He's lost perspective. He's lost the capacity to see. His emotions get the better. And one of the observations I think we ought to make from a passage like this and this event is that there's a very fine line, isn't there, between elation and despair. You can go from one to the other in the space of that long. And if you don't believe me, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, you might have seen some of these clips on YouTube. I kind of like YouTube. There's nothing to watch on free air telly, so I'll watch a bit of YouTube from time to time. Here's one, uh, some of the classics. They're called um, uh, The Dangers of Celebrating Too Early. You know, you've got an athlete, a long-distance athlete, uh, running towards the line. The crowd is gathered there. The crowd is cheering. He's, or she, doesn't matter, could be either. The, the ribbon is beckoning, taking in the adulation of the crowd. Thank you, everyone. They're roaring. What he doesn't realise is the crowd's roaring behind you because behind the athlete comes another one who is sprinting that last 100 metres. I had a coach years ago who said, if you can sprint the last 100 metres in a long-distance race, you have not run the race properly. But nevertheless, that's an aside. <laughs> because in that last moment, as this person is experiencing the elation of victory, someone zips by them, beats them by a minute, a metre, and they go from elation to despair. Oh, there's the other ones, you know, the soccer players, the goalie, who's uh, there defending the penalty kick. It's down there kind of doing this stuff. Is it left, right, left, right, left, whatever it's going to be. And the person who's sitting out there somewhere takes the kick and it hits the goalie. The ball just goes straight up in the air and he runs towards his adoring team, not realising the ball's gone up straight, bounces down behind him with the ambient spin on the ball, goes into the goals. Elation! Despair! Those are some of the more obvious examples but the reality is that in our Christian journey we sometimes go through the same kind of extremes, don't we? And in fact, I'd put it to you that we are most spiritually vulnerable after we've had a great victory. You know, just when we think, gosh, look, you know, what's God doing? Wow, how he's used me. There's always that temptation to pride, isn't there? Or something else. So... <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you this story, but I will. Uh, first of all, you need to put your hand on your heart and say, I will not repeat this story outside this <laughs> building. And Doug's just going to pause the video for a moment. I had, 
had a lady in a, in a church, I won't name the church, who, who was at once a great encourager because I know she used to pray for me every day. But at the same time, she was a little bit, um, how would we put this? There were occasions where she said it as it was and perhaps needed to use more discretion. So, for example, one day, just before the service, I was standing at the door and she came in and she said to me, oh, David, guess what? And I thought, hmm, this week I've learned how we can get a better pastor. I thought, well, this, is, this will be really interesting. This could go really, really well, or I might have to kill you. <laughs> and she said, no, no, I'm serious. I found out how to have a better pastor. Pray for the one you've got. And I thought, thank goodness I'm not about to become a murderer. <laughs> but you see, in those places, you're vulnerable. You're spiritually vulnerable. You know, if God's done something wonderful in the ministry that you're involved in, someone comes along and criticises, you can go from elation to despair in a moment. And that illustrates for us, I think, something that is worth talking about, and that is just how our feelings can be very poor indicators of God's activity in our lives, you know? If we base our faith on our feelings, uh, we can be on very... um, shaky grounds. We might dine out on the praise and adoration of others but then hit rock bottom when we're criticised. Let's just take a small deviation too and talk about experiences as part of our journey of faith. I think God's given us uh, emotions and feelings that are to be part of our faith so that we might experience him in ways other than just experiencing him intellectually but we need to be careful about anyone who peddles a gospel that is based purely on experiences. Anyone who says, well, if you've felt that, even if it's in conflict with what the Scripture says, deal with that person with great suspicion. I had a colleague years ago who was uh, counselling a friend and the friend was saying, this is not my story so I'll be honest, uh, the friend was saying, you know, I believe the Lord is leaving me to leave my wife. I think I've chose the wrong person and marry someone else and I believe that's what God wants me to do and my friend Doug said actually you know what the scripture says something different he said yeah well that's true but it's such a strong feeling that I have this is my experience what do you do with that well the fact of the matter is his experience is wrong which spirit speaking to that person I ask is it the spirit of God if it's in conflict with what's here in the scriptures then I don't think so and so we need to be very careful and cautious about that. What Joshua needed here in this passage above all else was to hear the facts from God. And what we need to hear too is rooted in what God has revealed to us in the Word. The experiences that God gives us of His Holy Spirit are important and terrific and uh, edifying and wonderful but if they're ever in tension with what the Scripture teaches then we've got to ask some pretty tough questions. Let's get back to the text. As God described the problem. Let's come back to verse 10. Uh, the Lord said to Joshua, Stand up, what are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. God describes to Joshua the problem. And I wonder <clears throat> whether Joshua was left kind of scratching his head saying, You know, what am I going to do 
about this. The Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever is devoted to destruction. I don't know, if you were in Joshua's shoes, what would you have been thinking in that moment? I know what I would have been thinking. I'm thinking, how am I ever going to fix this? What is the, what is the first thing I have to do? Just remind me, um, and you can call this answer out if you like, which testament are we in here? Old Testament or New Testament? Way back in the Old Testament, and yet let me put it to you, what we actually have reflected here way back in the Old Testament is the Gospel. A New Testament concept for some, but it's uh, foreshadowed here in the Old Testament. Let me just explain what I mean by that. God gave the Israelites, the city of Jericho, in the most wonderful way, in a similar manner that God's given us the world to live in. A beautiful world, a world that God's created. But Israel acted unfaithfully. Achan, if we want to use this language, took those things. He considered them worthy of making idols of. They were important to him, more important than the purity that God was calling him too, more important than the purity of the nation. In the same way that though God has given us a beautiful world, we have made idols of all sorts of stuff. And because God is a holy God, because God is a God who considers purity to be important, He is angered, He has to deal with sin. He can't let sin go. If He did, it would, uh, it would compromise who He is. And he makes that very clear to us through the scripture. He makes it very clear here to Joshua. There has to be something done about this. We say, Joshua says, no idea what am I going to do? So God provides a way. There's the gospel. God made a way through Jesus Christ for us. God made a way for Joshua because he came to Joshua in verse 13. He said, go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves Get yourselves ready for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said, that which is devoted among you, O Israel, you can't stand against your enemies until you remove it. And then from verse 14 through to verse 15, God explains what's going to happen. We're going to go from tribe to clan to family to the man and work it out. And this is a picture, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, what an interesting picture it is. Uh, what would Achan have been thinking in this moment, do you reckon? What was Achan thinking? Because he must have known the night before there was something big going down. And so I wonder whether Achan was there in that night pacing his tent thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to get around this one? Maybe I could fess up. Maybe I could bluff it out. Maybe I could uh, make some excuse. Maybe I could blame it on someone else. Maybe I could pretend they're not there. Maybe I could have a moment of just, uh, you know, um, dementia, Alzheimer's, anything. Maybe, who knows what he was thinking? But you can be pretty confident that the, he was thinking about it. And the next morning, as we see unfolding here in the text, a very strange kind of process of elimination and it would appear that Achan had made a decision in the night and his decision was to bluff it out. Now, one of, the, one of the things that I learned as a child was this. Let's use the language of a courtroom. An early confession usually resulted in a reduced sentence. 
I, can't, I, I really wish I could think of a good example of this, but I haven't got one. But I'm sure there were times, as a young person, something happened, something got broken, something was used, something was left out in the rain, something happened. And uh, there was a question, who is responsible for this? Who ate the last piece of? Who took those things? And you know, as a kid, you're always thinking, maybe I could bluff it out. Maybe I could blame the dog. Maybe I could, I had, the, I had a younger brother, maybe I could blame my younger brother, you know. And I would suspect, though I don't have any clear memories, perhaps because I've dissociated, maybe I've tried to blank it out, I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm making fun. Uh, I don't have any clear memories except that I know from experience that an early confession, if you owned up, it usually meant a reduced sentence. There were still consequences, but the consequences weren't usually as significant or severe think about that in light of this story wondering i'm wondering i'm speculating on how different the outcome might have been for Achan if he had come that night before or even if he'd come that morning and said hey it was me i'm the one i accept responsibility i'll take the consequences But he didn't and his confession that we have recorded here for us in verse 20 is in some ways a forced confession, isn't it? Because they've gone through this great long process of isolating clan by clan, tribe, clans, family, so on, so on. Achan the whole time thinking, gosh, it's getting tight here, it's getting closer. My goodness, maybe the idea of bluffing it out wasn't so clever afterwards until it's just him. And so then he opens up and says, yes, yes, it was me, but it's too late, isn't it? Too late. I wonder what would have happened if he had come clean. I wonder, in light of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where we read the words, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. I know that's a New Testament passage, but God's the same in the, throughout history. What would have happened if Achan had actually said, yes, it was me, I have sinned? Might have been a totally different outcome, mightn't it? And I suspect that with quite a bit of confidence because we look at someone like David in the Old Testament, King David, when he was confronted with his sin, you remember when, uh, when he, was, uh, he was stood up and said, you know, you are the one who's done this. David said, yes, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't try and blame someone else. He didn't try and shift the blame off and say, you know, it was Bathsheba's fault or it was the, the way the stars aligned or whatever it was. He just came clean and he said, yes, it's me. And what did God do? God said, well, there's consequences, but I love you and I will forgive you and I'll continue to use you. Might have been quite different for Achan. You might remember too last week that uh, we talked about the grace of God at work in even situations like this one. You remember uh, we talked about how when Israel came out of uh, Egypt, they crossed the sea and all the people heard about it. And there was an opportunity for the other nations to respond to this God, this powerful God, the Lord who brought them out. And then when Israel came up into the eastern areas there and started taking over that country, everybody heard about it. Rahab the prostitute, remember, she reported this. Everybody's in fear. 
And when Israel crossed the Jordan, there's this metronomic kind of increasing in pace, God's grace being demonstrated time and time and time and time and time again. Uh, People could see and acknowledge, if they were so given to, as Rahab did, when the people walked around the city once, twice, six times, Six days in a row there was an opportunity to repent. Seven times in one day until that moment where God's patience ran out. Grace demonstrated here too in this story because uh, time and time again Achan's had this opportunity. Now the whole of Israel is assembled, something's going down. Achan, you could, God's grace is there. Confess now, he doesn't. Plans. Achan, confess now, God's grace is present. He doesn't. Families, God's grace. Until we get to that point where God says, okay, now the consequences are yours. The grace of God demonstrated right through his scripture is something we must never, ever lose sight of. And then as we come to verses 24 to verse 26, the punishment was swift and complete. His family, who, as I suspect, were complicit in this deception were put to death it seems to us as a vengeful and angry response by God but then again we need to spend a bit of time highlighting just how seriously God takes sin and that's something we've lost in our community and allowing sin to go unpunished would make a mockery of who God is. You know, in our day, there are some people who want to argue that the death of Jesus was not necessary for the forgiveness of sin. You know, after all, God is all-powerful, he's almighty, he could just go ahead and do it. And to a degree, that's true, but at the same time, what that attitude really communicates is that sin doesn't actually matter that much. But it does. Our rebellion against God, this idol-making business where we go about making idols other than God, is serious. And if nothing else, this story should call us afresh to thank God for the blood of Christ which cleanses us from sin. Because we don't stand in Achan's shoes today. We stand as sinners washed in the blood of Christ, made pure, made holy by God. So back to our original question, would we miss it? If God withdrew his blessing and power from the church in the manner that Israel certainly did on this occasion, would it be reflected, do you think, in our worship? Would our offerings go down? Would they go up? Would our corporate joy disappear, our unity, our fellowship, our messages change? Or would we just kind of go on doing the same thing week by week because we've become good at what we do? I guess um, one of the risks we face as a church with all of the blessings that we have of people and resources is that just maybe we could do a pretty good job without God, couldn't we? The person leading the singing might be able to stir up enough energy and emotion so that our services feel the same. Our speakers might be able to cobble together a message that sounds kind of spiritual We might be able to get along with one another even still because we've all been taught to be nice in church, haven't we? Even the people at the door who want to tell us how to have a better pastor. (laughs) But I want to say to you this morning, if we went down that line believing for a moment that we did not need God, trusting in our own resources, uh, 
taking for granted the blood of Christ, ignoring the need for the enabling of the Holy Spirit, then we would become, as Israel did on occasions, as they turned away from God, a people without power, a people without purpose, and a people without a plan. Just as Israel did if they walked that road as they did. Day by day, hour by hour, we need to humble ourselves, recognising that without God we are nothing in the manner that Israel was brought short this time, recognising that without God, they were nothing. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge before you today that without you, we are nothing. We have nothing to offer the world without the hope there is in Christ. We have nothing to impact our world without the power that there is in Christ. We have nothing to say to the world without the message that there is in Christ. And though this is a confronting story from the Old Testament, it does bring us to this place, Lord, where we have to ask ourselves again, are we walking on occasions without your power? Are we trying to do stuff in our own strength? Have we become so wrapped up in our own needs and our own sense of what's right and wrong that we've ignored who you are, your holiness, your purity, your awesome nature, your majesty? And we invite you to confront us again to challenge our perceptions, to change our conclusions and to make us like Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word that speaks to us. Amen.